This person died in 2020 at age 60. He was described as brazen and shameless. Uh, Burt Reynolds? <laughs> Not Burt Reynolds. His ability to surprise and startle developed a darker edge as he became addicted to cocaine. Addicted to cocaine. Um, Chris Farley. Not Chris Farley. His thick musculature bloated into unhealthy corpulence. He was hospitalized in April 2004 with what doctors described as a weakened heart and acute breathing problems. Oh, man. Musculature. <laughs> I mean, Prince wasn't thick. Was it like Bill Paxton? Not Bill Paxton. I mean, this, these all sound like Burt Reynolds. <laughs> it's not Burt Reynolds. I thought you were going to thick mustache, and I was like, I got this. In 2000, FIFA, soccer's governing body, voted him and Pele of Brazil the sport's two greatest players. Diego Maradona. God, Diego Maradona. <laughs> Today's dead celebrity is Diego Maradona. Welcome to Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. And my name is Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we go through a series of categories about multiple aspects of a famous person's life. We want to find out the things that we would actually desire and ultimately answer a big question, would I want that life? Today, Diego Maradona died 2020, age 60. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Diego Maradona. The Argentine who became a national hero as one of soccer's greatest players, performing with a roguish cunning and extravagant control while pursuing a personal life rife with drug and alcohol abuse and health problems, died on Wednesday in Tigre, Argentina, in Buenos Aires province. Uh, wow. I think they captured a lot of it, if not I, all of it. Yeah, I actually have no idea what holes to poke. I'll tell you what leapt out to me. Whether or not to mention the drug and alcohol abuse in the first line of his obituary, it's such a big part of their story, but there's like a lot of famous people who die who have addiction issues where that's not mentioned in the first line of their but obituary. But there's not athletic demagogues who die of body and substance abuse and right. the fact that it compromised his entire career yeah. in life. But on the obituary... What I picked up on is these words of contrasts, like hero and rogue, right. or yeah. genius and cunning. Yeah, 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 yeah. Extravagant control, I think, is a great phrase. That's interesting. Yeah. Dude, I don't know what the hole is. Is this? Do I give this a 10 out of 10? I'm kind of leaning that way. I don't see what's wrong with this first line of the obituary. Like, I do think it is missing his incredibly humble background from the slums of Buenos Aires and extreme poverty to one of the greatest athletes in this sport of all time, if not the greatest. Yeah. I mean, that's that's just picking and choosing. There's so much to the story. But you're right. That is missing. It's, it's whether it's even possible to fill that in. It feels important to me because, to your point about 
contrasts. I do think you have to know that about him to understand his folk hero quality. I, I, I actually think that's a little bit of an omission for me the more I think about it. Perhaps. Yeah. If it's a space issue, I don't know. But yeah. um, pretty damn good. Well, all right. What are you giving it? Uh, I'm going to go into new territory, Michael Osborne. I'm going to give it a 10. Wow. I you am perfect as possible. Well, I'm starting to believe that uh, near perfect or very good enough is worthy of a 10. Yeah. I'm giving it a nine and I'm giving it a nine because I want the humble background in there. It is such an important part of his story for me. Okay. 10 and a nine. All right. Category two, five things I love about you. Here, Amit and I work together to come up with five reasons why we are talking about this person in the first place. I want you to start. What do you have? First thing you want to nominate. First thing I put is dedication. His talents are what everyone knows, but one part of that was his dedication to the game and on the field. An example I pulled was in the 1986 World Cup, in which they ultimately won. He played every minute of every game. So is dedication synonymous with uh, work ethic to you, or are you putting those as two different things? In this situation, I'm making them somewhat synonymous. I I think by definition, they are different, but here I'm kind of using it as an overlap. I I mean, every minute of every game. Yeah, he's all in. He is all in. And that is so taxing on any human form. Well, and one thing I didn't know, because I don't understand soccer that well, I think it has gotten less brutal in recent years, when he was at his peak in the 80s, I think it was a slightly more violent game. Everything I found in my research showed that he got the shit beat out of him. He was attacked by other players in violent ways, and as much as you can get away with that shit on the field. Yeah. So, to your point about dedication and playing, I mean, he's playing in a particularly you know, brutal period of soccer's history, I think. With a target on his back all the time. Because he's the man. Yeah. All right, I do want to ask about this. What is your relationship with soccer? I do watch the World Cup uh, every four years as much as I can. I don't follow much in between. On the scale of how grand a soccer fan can be globally, I'm far on the other end of that scale. But I'm familiar enough with it to understand which countries are good, who some of the key players are, and then it just stops about there. How many professional soccer players do you think you could name? And I'm not going to ask you to do it, but like uh, off the top of your head. 20. Yeah, so that's twice as many as me, probably. I think I would struggle to come up with eight. And what's funny is that some of my closest friends are avid soccer fans. So I've kind of like caught in the tailwinds of some of their passion for it. Yeah. But I did not realize nearly how important Diego Maradona is as a player in soccer's history until getting ready for this episode. Really? Yeah. I didn't realize that his name was mentioned in the same breath as Pele. I mean, this is... Magic Johnson to Michael Jordan or Mike Tyson to Muhammad Ali or whatever. Like it's in that same Mount Rushmore of greatest of all time. Yeah. We're two, we're here. We are like two, not very well-versed Americans yeah. I, trying to speak of one of the greatest of all time. I, I, was, I was somehow on more comfortable territory when we were talking about Shirley Temple. Yeah. Uh, should I go? Think yeah. I love number two. Okay. I'm going to skip to something that is, is not top of my list, but I think it's actually the most important thing for me. A really interesting and eventful life. There's nothing boring about this guy. There is nothing about him that is like on the sidelines or took a job he didn't want. There is no moment in his entire 60-year existence that isn't supercharged. Every moment of his existence was interesting. 
And like, literally, it started at like age three when they it, started to recognize his talent. Totally. That that I had to really think about that because the word interesting is usually when people use it, they mean the opposite. Oh, that's interesting. Usually yeah. that means that's boring. But I couldn't come up with a better word to summarize all the events and all the experiences of his life hold. And I love that because my great fear is that my life is going to be boring. I can understand that. But like it can be fascinating and interesting, but it can also burn you to the ground, as I think we're going to talk about a lot. So constantly interesting. Yes. Fascinating. Desirable. Eh. Don't think so. Okay. I, since you brought this up, this is something that's really been at the top of my mind about this episode. You go back to that obituary, right? It calls out his drug and alcohol abuse from the get-go. So we're not that far into this conversation. We know he died at 60. We haven't gotten over or under yet, but that's pretty young. We know he had a life rife with drug and alcohol and abuse problems. And... Well, we also know that he was famous, and you and I have kind of agreed that fame on its face doesn't look all that desirable. Well, you it's on a continuum. Sure, but you and I have this thing. Before we decide on who we're going to do, it's got to cross the 30% threshold. Yes. You want to explain what that is? Yeah, there needs to be at least a 30% chance that we say yes to the Vanderbeek. That's right. So I just want to acknowledge from the outset that we're going to have to make a hard case here because you put those things together— died young, drug and alcohol abuse, and was famous in a way that it was surrounded by the paparazzi for most of his life. We've got to find some things that, you know, add up to greater than that 30%. For me, this is the best thing I have to start off with. This is an incredible journey for an individual to have. I just wanted to call all of this out because I do think it needs to be acknowledged up top that in some ways, a yes to the Vanderbeek is an uphill battle. So I'll be curious to see how strong the case we can make is as we go through. Yeah, I'm pretty confident. Well, with that, uh, thing you love, number three. Okay. His wedding in 1989 was this huge affair in Argentina. What I loved about it, though, is he flew over 200 teammates and ex-teammates to the wedding. And I think that is fantastic. I think about like a wedding that I have to go to later this year and it's in another country, you know, but a lot of people are, have reasons that they can't go. But if you are able to just say, here's a ticket, you're coming. Uh, that's living. Okay. So I didn't understand it totally at first. What you like is the gesture. Yes, absolutely. After. Yeah. Like everybody needs to show up for this. It's going to be a big badass party and it's, let's party like it's 1989. Yeah, but it's also like, I need you there. No excuses. Just send your passport number to this person and you're coming. What's the best party you've ever thrown? The best party I've ever thrown? I would probably say either my 30th or my 40th birthday party. The 30th, in terms of volume, there was just a lot of people there. Everyone was wearing the exact same t-shirt. It was a lot of fun. Is this the one you did at Taco Cabana? No, that was my 24th. Fourth or twenty fifth. That's up there too. I've had a lot of really good birthday parties. Yeah, you throw a good party, man. Thank that, you. That's something I. I, I you attended my thirty fifth. Of yeah. course, of course. Ah, uh, so going back to the Maradona, I would certainly fantasize about having that ability. Yeah, to yeah. do it. Yeah, that's cool. That's a good one. I like it. Uh best party I ever threw was my wedding, and I don't think I can top it. You had a band there, like a well-known band. I had the band. gourds, man. I had the gourds. That of, is big of, of gin and juice fame. That was my wedding gift from my parents. That um, is awesome. It was a good one. It was a good one. All right. You want me to take number four? Yep. It's your turn. 
I think I got to go with passion. The guy was passionate through and through. Like he wore his emotions on his sleeve. Yes. And you could see it in his face. You could see it in his expressions and his whole body. I admire people who have that kind of passion. And I, I think it's perhaps his defining quality. Like you can see on some of these videos when he like lines up for the national anthem and he's being booed, yeah. like he's getting visibly angry and he's like mouthing those motherfuckers. Yeah, when they do it. <laughs> and you look at the story. So a lot of what we'll probably talk about was his time in Naples. Right before that, he played for a club in Barcelona. Barcelona. Yes. <laughs> um. No. No. <laughs> no. Um, Did you ever see that John Oliver bit where he talks about how annoying it is when people come back from Spain and call it Barcelona? <laughs> you are the worst. I did see that. <laughs> uh, he was ultimately like left that club or they sold him was the phrase that they used. You're right. And that was largely in part of this massive melee that he was involved in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and this like, brawl of, in front of 100,000 people. But yeah. what happened is somebody on the opposing team was taunting him as he always gets taunted because he's so good. Yeah. But the person crossed a line by saying something about his father and used some slur about his father's indigenous background in South America. And he's like, okay, it's go time. I'm going to beat the shit out of you. But what we're talking about here is passion and expression. Yeah. Well, and it's a leadership quality. I think that's part of the reason I admire it. I asked uh, a friend of mine before, you mentioned, you know, he's good, and we've talked about his greatness. I asked a friend of mine who understands soccer very well to break down his goodness for me a little bit. What he said is like, all right, think of it in four ways. There's technically, tactically, physically, and mentally. So technically, like, what are his actual skills and ability, his ability to control the ball, his, you know, relationship with the ball, just pure fundamental skill. Tactically, ability to think and make decisions and make on-the-fly decisions, which I want to talk about that more in a second. Physically, his body, and then mentally, the sort of psychology. You can imagine the pressure of it. I asked him to dig deeper on the physically thing because he is a short guy, right? Maradona. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Five-five. Right. Which, And I was like, wouldn't all other things have been better if he were, you know, 6'2"? And he's like... Yes, but when you package all these things up together, I'm not so sure. The low center of gravity. I read that a lot. Did you? Yeah. So in in some ways, he's like, if you are designing the perfect soccer player, you might futz with that variable, but everything else is a 10 out of 10. Yeah, but they say that shortness, that low center of gravity, combined with the ball control skills and the range was what made him such an outlier. Yeah. 5-5 in in any team sport, you wouldn't expect to... Excellence. Excellence. You wouldn't expect excellence. All right. Uh, you want to take five? Yeah, I've got a lot. What I tried to do is, is see the ones that aren't going to come up later. And the one I went with is ice cream. So in the 2010 World Cup, a lot of these teams, especially those like kind of prima donna types, have extraordinary requests for their accommodations. It goes back to that whole like M&Ms in the dressing room type of thing. When it yeah, comes this to is the drives. Rolling Stones would write like a writer or something in their contract saying we want only green M&Ms. Exactly. And it was like a test to see if you read the contract, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, I don't think this was a test. This was actually demands. Okay. So Argentina is one of those teams because Maradona was the coach at that World Cup. Sorry, what year are we talking about? 2010. The okay, South this Africa one he was one, a I coach is long after his retirement. Yes. Right? Yeah. So of all of his outlandish requests, most of which were met, was for the team to have 24-hour access to ice cream. And I think that meant himself having 24-hour wow. access to ice cream. 
there's a lot to say about that's indulgent, especially if we're talking about somebody that is an addict. However, what I like about it is the way it speaks to the inner child. Just that that's one of the requests. Wow. You know, there was a lot of inner child possibly lost or trying to be grasped throughout Maradona's life and decline, but I like excluding the excess of it. I like the ice cream request for what it speaks to the inner child. I love that one. I love that one. I thought about if I were ever on death row, what my final thing would be, my final meal. I'd probably love to have two gallons of ice cream. <laughs> I really don't. I've, I've really thought about this. Would it be barbecue? Would it be a hamburger? Would it be, uh, you know, enchiladas? I, I actually think if I'm about to face the, the chair, I think I just want as much ice cream as I could possibly eat. Fucking love ice cream. Wow. I love that you chose that for number five. That's really good. Okay. Uh, and it, I'm going to probably get some ice. You've created a craving. Sir. Good. All right. So, uh, all right. So let's recap. So we said dedication, an interesting life, an eventful life. You uh, said. I said flying teammates to the wedding. Flying teammates to the wedding. I said passion. And we talked a little bit about how that blends in with his greatness and ice cream. Yep. Perfect. All right. Category three. Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which characters in the movie can take this little kind of slide into John Malkovich's brain and have a front row seat to his experiences. Amit, what's your Malkovich, Malkovich moment? There were a lot to choose from. I kind of like vacillated between both the good and the bad. Uh, I ultimately landed with a good one, and it was when he was introduced to the city of Naples. After this Barcelona thing, he went to play for... Naples, Italy. Mm -hmm. And after sort of the contract was finalized and he arrived, they did this welcome reception for him at the stadium where something like 85,000 people were present. And this was not for a game. This was not for a concert. This is just for Diego Maradona to walk out on the field and he like dribbled for a few minutes. Yeah. And they are chanting his name and 85,000 people to your debutante ball. <laughs> like, that's essentially what it was. And my God, to see that crowd from those eyes who are there for no other reason than to celebrate your arrival. Your potential. Like the thing that hasn't even happened yet. Yes. Yeah. God, you want that? Do I actually want it? Do I want that much attention and therefore that much kind of stress that will follow it? Right. Absolutely not. Yeah. But I wouldn't mind walking out of the studio right now and just have 85,000 people clapping for me. And then I go to my car and they forget who I am. Let me send a quick text message. See if I can. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, that there's a lot of validation in that moment, right? If you ever worry about anonymity in your life, and I don't think Diego Maradona ever did, but I don't want all the weight that goes with that. Yeah. But to have a quick... And what we're talking about is a Malkovich portal, right? So you're in a front row seat for just a little while. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, the embracing of what you could be, of your future potential. If you believe that you are destined for greatness, which I think he must have, and to have fans express that. It's acknowledgement that you exist, right? Yeah. Like, I think so much of, of awards, when you think about the Oscars and stuff like that, 
a lot of it is recognition for your work, but so much of all awards is also just acknowledgement. They're saying my existence and my creation is is valid. But I can't think of another uh, analogy outside of sports where you're being celebrated for something that hasn't happened yet, for the potential. Presidential inauguration. That's fair. I don't even know if though, that's a good ceremony for society to have and to be doing. Like, maybe it is. It seems like if we are here to say we believe in what we, you, we think you can do for us, whatever that may be, then I, I think that's probably a good message to communicate to that individual. But it seems like that's actually a message that's more directed at the crowd. What we're really saying is how much we need this. Yeah, and well, and and uh, here's here's a massive weight we're going to place on you for yeah. this next decade of your this life. This is how desperate we are. Because I mean, I mean, to set the context for this, like Naples did not have a good soccer team at the time, and and I was pretty ignorant before this episode about some of the north south divisions in Italy. Naples was a target of a lot of prejudice within Italy. Yeah, it was. it's like hick country to them. Right. Yeah, I want to say one more thing about that. So my friends and I, we have a, a little tradition sometimes when we gather that if we're at a bar or someone's house, if we arrive at interval times, uh, we have a phrase that we say called clap them in. So basically, if we see our friend walk <laughs> through the door, and then we'll just applaud. Yeah. We'll just clap him in until he comes and sits at our table of five. Great. And that's just a micro version of this. I just think the acknowledgement of existence on a grand scale. Clap him in. I like that. I'm going to yeah. steal that. All right. Malkovich for you. I went Captain Obvious here because I feel like this is a good place to talk about it. The handball in 1986. The it, hand of God. The hand of what? God. In 1986, this is the quarterfinals game. Argentina versus England in the 1986 World Cup. This is like one of the most famous moments in his entire professional life, certainly in the international life. And it's one of the most famous moments in World Cup soccer, and even if it's in the quarterfinals. Yeah, um, every listener would benefit from YouTubing it right now. That's right. But basically what happens is he goes up to head up the ball into the goal, and he actually hits it with his hand, and it's a very obvious handball, but the referee didn't see it. And it goes in, gets ruled a goal. Argentina goes up one nothing against England. The second most important thing is four minutes later when he slashes through all the English defenders and scores just one of the most incredible goals. And that play is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So that one I like seeing. But the handball itself, that's my Malkovich moment. And why? The way it's a split-second decision, right? So there's all this lore around this moment because this is four years after the Falklands War between Argentina and, and the UK. There's all this shame in Argentina about how thoroughly defeated they were by the English. And the story later is like this soccer match is almost revenge on the Falklands War, right? That's how important soccer is yeah. to, to these fan bases. As he's going up for that ball, he must have known that his 5'5 stature isn't quite enough to get his head there. And he makes this decision to fling it with his hand. It's the split-second decision of that moment. You know, you don't have a, any time to think, am I going to get away with this? You've got to assume it's probably going to be ruled a foul because it's against the rules. But then in the microseconds after, you hear them yell goal and there's celebration. So I, I guess... And we're not in an instant replay culture. And we're not in an instant replay culture. So I, I, I just want to know what's happening in those seconds that surround that moment. Because what it looks like to me is that he's going for a header, but he yeah. can't quite get there, right? Um, and so he decides to to punch it, and and then he gets away with it, and he knows this has enormous consequences because now all of a sudden they're 
leading in the game. Yeah, I, I want to know what's going through his mind. And I'm, I'm not sure he knew. There was probably a lot going well, in. Well, that's but, the point. But that's, that the, the, that, that's exactly it. It's actually. like if you could just slow down those microseconds into understanding every thought, because there is a calculation that's going on of, do I do this? Do I let this bounce off my chest? What do I do? And so what you want to see is like all the waiting of everything that's happening in that split second. Well, and you know, this is something that to this day remains a heated sports moment that people will argue about and discuss. The stories we tell about what it's significant have almost no relationship to the actual incident itself. So there's a part of me that just wants to know the truth of what was in his mind when he's like, fuck it, I'm hitting it with my hand. Yeah, and this is also when a lot of the world started to split on Maradona. That's right. Like, this is like the... They call him uh, a cheat. Yeah, and you got to wonder in those decisions. I mean, on the one hand, you wonder if the devil inside of him is like, I will do anything to win. But on the other hand, it's also the phrase he used to describe it is, that goal was with the head of Maradona and a little bit of the hand of God. I mean, I don't even think he knows. Yeah. I don't even think he knew what was going on in his mind. But I wonder, so do you have a hypothesis with the, the background of the Falklands War and all of that, that maybe this is just like, this is a little bit of earned justice, uh, right? That I might punch this ball in, it might go in, I might get away with this. This is deserved. I don't know, and I wouldn't pretend to know. What I do think is that he was a man that, from a very early age, you mentioned inner child earlier, I think he must have felt like a man with a destiny. I think if you believe that you have a destiny in life, you also begin to believe in a sort of immortality. The rules don't apply at some point. That's the psychology that was underlying that split second decision. Yeah. Well, it's Perhaps, you, believe, that's you my... believe in an immortality, but you also believe in a duty. Right. Right. That yeah. that you are so important to this team and to this country that you're representing that you have to get the ball in. Yeah. That's my Malkovich moment. Yeah. That millisecond is probably worth about a million words. Yeah. Well, and luckily we have the internet for that. <laughs> Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Category four, love and marriage. Uh, how many marriages? Also, how many children? And is there anything public about these relationships? Got yes, it all yes, here. Yes. I'll go through. Okay. One marriage to Claudia in 1989. They'd actually been together for a number of years prior to that. Diego was 29. She was 27. They were divorced in 2003 or four. I actually heard differing accounts about the actual year. So he's about 44. She's about 42. They had two daughters as part of that marriage. So that's the only marriage. The kid's story gets a lot more complicated. Well, the marriage story we need to get into also. That's complicated, given the kid's story. So which one? Which direction should no, we go explain, from here? Yeah, explain the kids. Uh, it's hard to know exactly how many total. There were up to eight, maybe more, including the two with Claudia, so six more. There's absolutely another boy that he's the father of and was determined in a paternity suit with an Italian woman during his time in Naples. There's also another child named Jana, also born out of wedlock. Diego Fernando was born to his ex-girlfriend in 2013. There were no paternity issues there. It was just a child born outside of the marriage. And I wrote this down. The Argentine legend did acknowledge paternity of three Cuban children because he was in Cuba in the early 2000s. For three years, under basically under the care of Fidel Castro. Yeah, they'd become buddies. In fact, Fidel was one of the most important people he dedicated his autobiography to. I, I read it. It's hard to get through. Like It's just a lot of soccer in there. Um, so I had to go to other places to get information. Anyway, let's see. So the Cuban children were reportedly born to two different mothers during that time. Two more people have claimed to be the children of Diego Maradona in recent years, and there may be more. So he's fathering a lot of children. And not I, I think even to the day he died, he didn't acknowledge all of them. I think the the first one of, from the Italian woman, he eventually did. Yeah, who's a soccer player himself. Yes. Yeah. There wasn't a lot of like public claims for paternity. Right? It's hard to track. There may be more, and I don't know. Something I discovered in trying to learn about some of this stuff is, first of all, my Spanish is not all that great. So some of these newspaper clippings haven't been translated. So it's a little bit harder to get information on. So what 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 to be said about all this? Well, we, you know... Should the, we go back to Claudia? Yeah, I think so, because the North Star of the show is desirability and what's good. So he was in a long-term relationship that culminated in marriage. And who, he met this woman at a very young age, when he was a child, basically. Yeah, uh, he was clearly not monogamous. None of these affairs, like, everyone knew about them. It was part of the persona that was Maradona, especially living in... Italy during those years, and maybe even in Spain before that, he was seen with women. It was well known. I mean, his time in Naples came to a conclusion with a prostitution ring getting busted. And I didn't completely understand his role in that, other than he was caught up in it. And he was also tied up with the mob at that point. Yes. Okay. So I'm, what I want to know is the marriage. Yeah. You know, you are not committed monogamously. Uh, no, it's, it's not, not a monogamous marriage. At least on one side. I don't know anything about Claudia's... Yeah, I didn't, life. I didn't look into it. 
What I guess I want to know is why, and maybe this is just from her perspective. I mean, I don't think I have to think that hard about it. I think what defines his life is a kind of search for anything that resembles stability. The fact that they knew each other basically as kids, I think matters. I think she's an anchor of a sorts of his roots and where he came from and is a reminder of those years that, that life was like before he became a soccer great, which basically happens around age 15 or 16. Yeah. I mean, he's an adolescent. He's not a man yet. But what does that say, like, for, for her? Let's say just from her perspective, she's in this long-term relationship. She's the mother of his two children. They eventually get married, but she's very aware of his lifestyle. So why does she do it? I don't know. I have to assume the power dynamics are such that they both come from extreme poverty, and he's pulling in an incredible salary. It does not seem all that uncommon to me that there are people who come from humble backgrounds who encounter wealth, and that creates an unbelievable amount of room for forgiveness of otherwise unforgivable behavior. So I I just have to assume that there's not even the perception of choice for her. Why would he want it? I think— It's clear why he would want it, because he gets everything. He gets the home life, and he gets everything. But does this make him bad? That's a bigger, nastier question. And and the reason it's a bigger, nastier question, I think, has to do somewhat with how you understand addiction as a disease. He's an alcoholic and he's a drug addict. To your question, was he a bad person? I think he's a sick person first. That's how I understand the disease of addiction. But what is that when you are knowingly and publicly entering into affairs? Uh, I think if you are an addict or an alcoholic, especially of the variety that Diego Maradona was, there is no limit to the damage you cause in your relationships. I still want to know whether you think he's a bad guy. That this specifically around the nature of of love and romance in his life. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to weigh in on anybody's marriage. I wouldn't call him a bad guy, but I call him a sick guy first. I, I, I guess I, I don't know how to get any closer to your question. Well, it's just it's hot, it's tough to wrap my head around that there is a version of marriage or a style of marriage that exists. One spouse knows that the other is a philanderer, and it doesn't rock the marriage. Well, because I, I, I okay, I think that we probably from the outside looking in, it's very easy to make too much of infidelity. My hunch is that there were also probably moments of deep expression of love and gratitude between the two of them. Yeah. I don't know, but it certainly looks that way. He certainly says that over and over in his autobiography. Like, I think he loved her, and I think he at times was able to communicate that, and at times he's caught up in his addiction. And I'm lumping his infidelity and problematic behavior as part of a consequence of his addiction. Because yeah. I think you you get drunk, you get fucked up on blow, and you rationalize all kinds of behavior that is harmful to other people, including your spouse. Yeah. But I also think that it's not like he was just a prick to her and fucking around. It doesn't seem that way. No, probably not. But who the hell knows? Like, what this all boils down to me is given the umbrella of addiction— in his life, I don't even know how closely to even bother looking at the marriage because I feel like you're trying to examine downstream issues when there's this like fucking elephant in the room. Yeah. It's just, it's, you know, the culture is that marriage is between two people. It's monogamous in a lifestyle like this. And I think in certain other modern lifestyles, that's not. 
the definition yeah. necessarily. And that definition is going to continue to evolve probably through our lifetime. Well, and maybe, I don't know, if I talked about anything useful at all in my ramblings there, I think the thing that matters is what are the expressions of love? Are they understood as expressions of love between the two people? And are they more or less reciprocal? It, you, I think it's fine to have a polyamorous relationship or, or understanding between two married people. However, my assumption is it's only going to be healthy if you're also able to say, this is how I need love from you and what do you need from me and that people meet those needs. I think we will and as far as in the dominant form of marriage and commitment, but I think this other segment is, is going to grow. Yeah, probably. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Category five, net worth. Uh, it's interesting. It's, um, I mean, it's, it, it seems like it was a wave. Right. But I think the reports that I saw is that at, at death, it was somewhere between like a hundred and five hundred thousand dollars. So I saw somewhere between a hundred thousand dollars and seventy five million. It depends if you count liabilities <laughs> and taxes. Yeah. Like he was, yeah. So he made a whole bunch of money in Italy and like the Italian government was after him for a long time. And one estimate was that over the course of his lifetime, he made five hundred million dollars. Yeah, and somewhere in the hundreds of thousands range is where it all lands. Yeah, which is the arc, right? So essentially, as a footballer, after the early nineties, he was no longer, and then had this kind of absence for a while and returned to coaching for Argentina and all. But then eventually, his coaching career landed, I think, in the Middle East. Yeah, he was coaching teams in the Emirates. Yeah, which is not that lucrative. And I think all the endorsements had been long gone after his public struggles. So he made a lot of money and he lost a lot of money. I think to this day, some of the inheritance disputes are still being sorted out. Yeah. Yeah. So the money just seems to mirror the arc of his career as an on the field athlete. Uh, I'm not sure there's a whole lot more to say about it. Yeah. Is there anything to gleam from it? I don't think so. I, I am glad for him that he was able to provide for his family, however messy that process was. Yeah. I think it speaks to the point you put out at the top of the show about extremes. That's, that's well captured in the obituary. Yeah. Category six. Simpsons, SNL, or Hall of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons, as well as impersonations. Uh, I've got this lined up. Do you want me to tell I'm you? very interested, yeah. All right. The Simpsons, he hated it. Hated it so much that there was actually a public dispute in 2006 between him and the man who did the Homer voice for the Argentine translation of The Simpsons. Because The Simpsons is really popular internationally. That's yeah. always been interesting to me. And uh, what was his reason for hating it? I think he hated America. I think he hated all things America. Yeah. And he was pretty public about that. I mean, he's buds with Fidel Castro. And I think there was a just anti-imperialist attitude. Okay. So that's The Simpsons. He never appeared, but but did get into this public battle. Okay. Uh, Saturday Night Live, I saw nothing. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have been surprised well, if there was an '86 World Cup sketch. Yeah, but there, I there may be that I didn't find this. Actually, I have to say, this exposed for me a weakness of our criteria for how famous a person is. I didn't realize quite what an American bias we were putting by choosing The Simpsons and Saturday Night Live. Well, it seemed to have worked for our, our British guests. It seemed to have worked for Nelson Mandela somewhat. So you see what I mean? Like his international fame is a plus plus lister. Right? Yeah. Everybody knows this guy abroad. But the Hall of Fames were interesting. I mean, ultimately the FIFA tied him with Pele of the best soccer player of the century. And the soccer players I talked to 
some would make the case that he's number one, that he's better than Pele. Yeah, I think there's a house divided. But but I do think that Pele, for whatever reason, has more fame and notoriety, a, a transcendent fame, than Maradona. Yeah. People who don't know soccer know the name Pele, and they may not know Maradona. I was raised on Pele, knowing like that's the one-word synonym with the game of soccer. And then that goal that you talked about in 1986, not the hand goal, but the other one that followed, yeah, the, has the, the made all sorts of lists of like the top 10 sports feats of all time. Yes. Yeah. I mean, widely, widely recognized. He's, and the guy is also, I mean, he's got stadiums named after him, even despite like how it all ended in Italy, they named the stadium after him. Even despite this controversy around the 86 hand of God, there is a statue of Maradona in front of that stadium in Mexico City. I mean, when he died in Argentina in November 2020, they declared like three days of mourning. Yeah. I think it is hard for an American audience that doesn't follow soccer to appreciate his godlike qualities. All right. Category seven, over under. In this category, we look at the generalized life expectancy for the year they were born to see if they beat the house odds and as a measure of grace. So... Uh, the life expectancy for an Argentina male born in 1960 was 65.06 years. He died at age 60, so under by about five years. Yeah, not tremendously. That was actually my reaction. I was like, not way under. I thought it was going to be more under. For an athlete, it's low, right? His weight vacillated so much. Yeah. Like in his peak, he was 150 pounds, and that at other times, he went up to 300 pounds. He had gastro bypass surgery. Yeah, but 60s, I just... 60 is young. Would you call this tragic? I don't know that the death age is necessarily any more tragic than anything else that's tragic. And I don't feel like he was robbed of more life. Exactly. I guess anybody dies at 60 and I'm sad about that. That's a young age. And without any other information, you'd say they die at 60. That's a young age. But when, when somebody says they died at a young age, the implication is that they had a whole lot more life to live and they were robbed of that. Yeah. Right. I don't feel that way about Maradona. No. Yeah. Cause if he was robbed of it, the robbing occurred decades before when his on field career essentially ended. That's right. Yeah. Cause all the sadness and the loss happened earlier and he did recover somewhat. You know, there yeah. were, there were still, I think as recently as 2018, there were still people that suspected he was on cocaine. Yes. 2018, there's a, a somewhat famous. Uh, soccer match where he's acting drunk. Yeah. But he did, by some degree, recover from the excesses of addiction. I don't know that I agree with that. You don't? I don't see it. That, to me, is the big question that's still looming over all this. And I have a take on this, but I want to save it. And I want to pause for a word from our sponsor. Hey, folks. Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. (laughs) 
Michael, do you shop for clothing at thrift stores? I do not. Do you? No, not really. Okay, why not? The fact that somebody else has worn it. I don't. Uh, it doesn't sit well. Yeah, I'm the same way. I don't buy used clothes. But you you, you like used books. I love used books. And love used books. That's a different thing. So what's the difference? I don't know. I mean, there's something about the way, you know, you imagine the hands that a book has passed through and what it means to, like, give a friend a book and to, like, pull it off the shelf and, oh, just take that one. Yeah, that, there's a history of, like, who's read it, who's acquired what from it. Totally. A six degrees of separation aspect. How did they all get here? It's not like used clothing where it's like, oh, somebody wore that. It's like somebody read this. You yeah. know, somebody sat with this and sat with these ideas or was into this story. So is there a certain place, for example, that perhaps you like to get uh, used books? Are you talking about half price books by any chance? I am, because yeah. you know why? Yeah. Half Price Books is celebrating 50 years of buying and selling books, movies, and music. There are 125 stores, and you can find out more at hpb.com. Up to this point in our conversation, we have mostly been talking about the easily knowable information, kind of fact-finding mission. This point in Famous and Gravy, we transition and try and get more at the inner life of an individual. So the first of the inner life categories we call man in the mirror. How did he feel about his reflection? Ahmed, do you want to take this? Yeah, I will. We had a little bit of an exchange earlier of like, well, are there two Maradonas? Is there a 25-year-old Maradona and a 50-year-old Maradona? The 300-pound Maradona and the 150 Yeah, there was literally Maradona. a 300-pound and a 150-pound. Yeah. But I'm still going with a consistent yes. That he did like it, even when he was bloated and looked almost like no version of his former self. And the reason I'm saying that is two reasons. One, you look at the way he carried himself. I'm not talking about the facial expressions or the eyes. His, the chin held up in particular. The chin held up, the chest out. Yeah. He was a broken man, but he was still... Proud? Proud. He was still he was still kind of a stud underneath in his own eyes. Yeah. I think. And I think that's like when he looked in the mirror, sometimes I look in the mirror and I don't know if I'm 14 years old or 44 years old. And I think that when Maradona did it, he's still mostly seeing that 25 year old. I agree with that. It's hard to say though, because I do think that addiction, which is the cloud that's over this whole fucking conversation involves a tremendous amount of self-loathing. I just don't know that that was evident in his literal reflection. I think that self-loathing existed away from the mirror and that when he looked in the mirror, he saw something great. Yeah. Okay. The next inner life question, outgoing message. Like man in the mirror, we want to know how they felt about the sound of their own voice when they heard it on an answering machine or would they have recorded uh, the voicemail for outgoing message on their cell phone? I'm going to hop in and say, I don't think he liked it because I don't think he liked talking. I yeah. think from a very early age, he was in a position of having to give interviews, and I think he found it tedious. So that's my uh, outgoing message. Yeah, I kind of fell 50-50 on this. You know, he spoke in quick bursts a lot, one-word answers and stuff to, to some of these interviews. But when you see him in the, like, the locker rooms, the after-the-game celebrations after the big win— he would like grab the microphone and go interview the other players oh, and yeah. the other coaches. But I think that's the adrenaline and the ecstasy. The ecstaticness of the moment. Yeah. yeah. But I also think that what you say has some merit. It's just not what he's about. He's, he's not, not about a talking. talker. He's not an 
orator so much, which is why I'm going to take that same route. But yeah. we should note, I mean, he did host a talk show That's in Argentina right. in like 2005. Which, which had both Castro and Pele, I think. And Mike Tyson. Gracias, Mike. Next category, regrets, public or private. What we really want to know is what, if anything, kept this person awake at night. I wrote down one thing for the public, which is his addiction to cocaine. That's it. I think that there's a story you can tell yourself if you suffer from addiction or alcoholism, that if I could go back to when that drug was first offered, I, I wished I'd known more than I would have said no. So that's all I got. Yeah. I mean, I can tack on to that, the affiliation with the Italian mafia, which yeah. I think was part of his cocaine. It's all downstream, though, stuff, man. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. this gets back to the marriage and the net worth. It's everything. Yeah. Like, this clouds his entire fucking life. Um, Did you have more? Well, here? I wonder if and if this is not the place for it, speak up. But I wonder if you have sympathy for his usage of cocaine. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fucking A. Look, I mean, this guy, he's born into hunger, literal hunger, right? Mm -hmm. It's a two-room house. He's sharing it with seven or eight siblings. There's even a story about him falling into the latrine when he was like three years old or something. I mean, like true shantytown poverty. And then he discovers this gift. He gets a soccer ball at age three and has a singular obsession with it. And he gets better and better as time goes on, so much so that coaches, by the time he's 9, 10, 11, 12, can't even believe how young he is. And then by age 15, he gets his first paycheck. And, and, and then the rocket ship takes off, and he's getting all kinds of signals from the universe of how worthy he is of things. He's getting big checks. He's getting all these opportunities and he's experiencing a tremendous amount of glory on the soccer field. I think that each of those forms of validation builds in him a deeper and deeper and deeper hunger that there is ever no satiation. Right. And so when cocaine enters his life, it's just a, yet another one, but that's the monster. That's the beast. And I have to imagine that as the addiction takes hold throughout the eighties, every cocaine molecule entering his brain is just like offering something that nothing else can. And even that at some point can't even satiate but it's almost like you've been on this rocket ship and you flew off a cliff and now where's the ground beneath you? Yeah, you know? exactly. Yes, I think that that is, what's, what's interesting to me about addiction is that it's just the human condition like taken to an extreme, you know? So my heart goes out to him and I'm sympathetic to him in, the, in, in a kind of Buddhist way that I think we're all suffering inside. Yeah. But I think he's suffering a lot. Yeah, I, I think you put it well, is that if you can achieve anything and you are achieving everything and so many of these moments is a high and you're just out of highs, right? You're yeah. like, nothing else is really working. How do I feel any sort of better than this, yeah. right? Which is kind of the human condition. It's always this constant improvement. And when you are so validated as the best in the world, you get everything you want for a while. You've gone from literal just living in a shanty in a matter of like 16 years to being a mega millionaire most wanted star and you just can't 
find anything else and you're still just looking for something else to elevate or at least change the way that, that you feel or think. And unfortunately, that's what he landed on. And so I think the the takeaway for me is that you used a phrase, I don't remember in which episode, but that at some point you have to just say, this is enough. Kenny but, Rogers. Kenny yeah. Rogers. Kenny and, Rogers had just enough. And I think that's, you know, we're talking about fame here, but I think you're also just talking about life that at some point you just have to say, okay, I don't crave any more. I'm writing this wave as best I can, and it doesn't have to be better. Yeah. So real quick on the regrets, I just want your opinion. Do you think he regretted the the hand of God? No. Yeah, I don't think so either. He no. owned up to it. But I'm glad you asked. Next category, good dreams, bad dreams. Do they have a haunted look in the eye, inner turmoil, inner demons, unresolved trauma? I'm going to say bad. If you say good, then I don't know what the fuck we're doing. Oh, I think they were good up until the addiction and the unraveling. And you see it. Like, you see a big difference in his eyes when you watch a videotape from, say, 1989 versus one in 2004. Yeah. All right. Second to last category, cocktail, coffee, or cannabis. This is where we ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? It's maybe a question of what kind of drug sounds like the most fun to partake with this person. Another philosophy is that a particular kind of drug might allow access, unlock something that you're most curious about. What do you got? I can't do cannabis. I just can't go into that sort of category of I would say cannabis is safer than alcohol for this guy. Yeah, I know. So I don't want the coffee because coffee's in an orator's drink. And as we've kind of said, that's not our perception of him. Yeah. He did look like kind of a fun drunk. Um, I'm talking about in the eighties and all because he like he jumps up and down and he puts his arms around you. And so I'm gonna passion is there. And yeah, so I'm I'm gonna say I I would love to have cocktails with him in nineteen eighty six. I think that's fair. Even though there is the background of cocaine and everything. But yeah, if I could have cocktails with him in nineteen eighty six, that's what I'm gonna do. I think that's a great answer. When he's on the high, I bet he was a fucking blast to party with. And I think he makes you feel Fantastic. Absolutely. Like you saw the way he pumped up his teammates and stuff in the yeah. locker room afterwards. He's like, You're the yeah. star of this national championship team. If you go like, out partying with Maradona before, you know, the demons have arrived, fuck yeah. Yeah. That'd be a good night. Yeah. I went coffee. Okay. <laughs> and it actually has more to do with my ignorance of the sport of soccer. We haven't used the word genius. And that is used a lot, though. To and describe that is them. used a lot, and appropriately so athleticism is its own flavor of genius. And I would love to go deep on the tactical side. I would love to actually have him map out for me how this works. Because what I'd really like to see is what, if any, metaphors can be extracted from that. If he's got the singular obsession that has led to his greatness, I'd like to believe that there is something about the game itself that can teach us bigger life lessons. Oh, sure. And no doubt he looks at the field in a completely different way than somebody else, and that's just his natural ability. So, because he was a genius, I want the coffee. Good answer. Thank you. All right, man. We're here. The Vanderbeek. Named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. Do you want to go? I think I have something to say. Okay. So, I mentioned at the top that I was going to have a hard time trying to talk myself into being north of 30%. One way I've been thinking about this one is by trying to ask, what's it all about? There's a part of me that wants to break down life into a how many good moments versus how many bad moments did you have? 
obviously that misses a lot of stuff though, right? Yeah. I don't think it's a good way to look at a life. The strongest case I can make for a yes to the Vanderbeek here is that I do think I wonder on balance if he didn't have more moments of joy, elation, ecstasy, excitement, passion, even if that's 51% versus 49% of despair, alienation, depression, sadness, and regret. That's the strongest case I can make for the Vanderbeek here. I've really tried to talk myself into north of 30%, and I can't get there. Yeah. So I'm a no. Yeah. How about you? But, so I'll, I'll try to talk it through, I think, as you did, of like there were those moments that could outnumber the suffering. Yeah. That the number of good moments, or just let's do very binary, right? Like you're counting cards. There are more moments of meaning and joy than there are moments of suffering. That might be true. But I think the argument that I would possibly make in favor of the Vanderbeek is also having purpose. So you look at the role that this guy played in the lives of so many people, like Argentina recovering from where it was and winning a World Cup. Like that actually is life changing for a lot of people. You know, there are probably a lot of people that will like go to 85 years old in the country of Argentina, and they're like, what's the best moment of your life, even though this person just worked in a factory their entire life? And they're going to say in 1986 when we won the World Cup. Yeah. And that could not have happened without him. Same with, you know, there are people throughout Italy that may also say at the end of their life, what's the best moment of your life? And they'll be like, well, when we won the Italian championship. And he, he did that. He changed a lot of lives. And I don't think, you know, they were necessarily that saddened by his downfall because he left them with all this sense of of pride and they are taking those memories with him it's almost like he had to make like i'm not making a nelson mandela analogy fully here but you know he was a sacrifice for that and i i think that's a case that one can make for meaning it's a good point my framing was really confined to the experience of the individual yeah, right. and it didn't take into account legacy or positive impact you had on strangers or or a country. But I think this is the case of the individual because he too knew, like he too has those memories of people chanting his name and everything. And they're not doing that because they absolutely love him. They're doing it because he's lifting their city or their nation. And he's doing that much in the way that any hero did. So there is a case for meaning to be made, no matter how much the personal struggle was. There's a case for sacrifice or even martyrdom. However, I side with you on the Vanderbeek, which is no. And that is the the loss of control and the loss of mental faculty. You have to ultimately look after yourself, even if you are lifting up nations and cities. And to lose yourself that much and be that powerless and struggle that much. And it seems like never really being at a level set, you know? Yeah. It's interesting to hear you say that, though, is that it seems to me control is an illusion. I, I, I do not believe addiction is a problem of willpower. I think it's misunderstood as that, right? Yeah. I mean, you don't have to be an alcoholic or an addict to feel like you have addictive behavior, to eat too much, to watch too much porn, to gamble too much, to be a workaholic. Yeah. I mean, we're all kind of caught up in the same problem of trying to 
you know, seek and find validation. And, and the solution does seem to be having a better relationship with the idea of control itself. Yeah. If I'm going to put it a different way, yeah. the reason I say no is I don't want to peak in my 20s and 30s. And a lot of people, you can say that for a lot of athletes, that they peak in their 20s and 30s, certainly performance-wise. Yeah. But mentally, he peaked in his 20s and 30s. It seems like his his moments of the most mental clarity and being at peace were younger. And that's what I don't want. I want the staircase to always be going up in some way. Yeah, me too. I think what we're really talking about is longevity, but like the journey, the whole journey. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're there. The pearly gates. Amit, you're Diego Maradona. You've died and you're Catholic too. Um, so you get to meet St. Peter, who's waiting for you there at the pearly gates. You have an opportunity to make your pitch. The floor is yours. I am Diego Maradona. So you, St. Peter, are the bouncer for God in some way. So on the other side of you is God. To a lot of this world, God is football. So let me explain that. I don't believe neither of those are true. I believe God is God. I'm a Catholic. <laughs> um, but I want to tell you about what I did for the Naples football club and what I did for the country of Argentina. Where I'm taking this is pride. When both of those teams prevailed in championships, you had people chanting, people embracing, people united for a team, a place that they identify with. And what I enabled was belonging. It was belonging for a city, for a nation, for a world. Belonging. Let me in. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying our show, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It really does help new listeners to find the show. We would love to see you on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Famous and Gravy. We've got lots of fun stuff there on our Twitter feed. Also, please sign up for our newsletter on our website, FamousAndGravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. And thanks also to our sponsor, Half Price Books. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 